story of friendship between a wild owl and a famed ecologist. And it was just a fantastic story full of nuance and subtlety and capacity that I did not suspect owls harbored. You know, I, I got to know something about these birds. And then I started to ask myself, well, why are we so blind to all of this? These lives happen all around us all the time. I actually studied birds for a living for a long while. Why was all of this a surprise to me? What's wrong with with us that we are so unacquainted with the world around us? Is this a natural thing about the human mind that we're not interested or we're, or we're so limited in our ability to pay attention and understand? Or, or is it a cultural thing that we're simply taught that the rest of the living world is of no real interest and no real value to us. So I went on a bit of a journey myself, you know, trying to answer that question. That's Carl Safina. We talk with him about his book, Alfie and Me, What Owls Know, What Humans Believe. Then, do the endless wars around oil include the current Israeli-Palestinian conflict? My investigation went all the way up to the endless wars, and I found oil and pipeline connections to all of them. And it continues today. Gaza, it's an oil and gas field off the coast of Gaza that the Palestinians are laying claim to, and Netanyahu was determined not to allow them to get it. That's Charlotte Dennett. Her book, Follow the Pipelines, is about the deadly politics of the great game for oil. Later in the show, we talk with her about how those deadly politics are a key but hidden factor in the West and Israel's dealings with the Palestinians. That's all coming up on today's Writer's Voice, in-depth conversation with writers of all genres, on the air since 2004. Thanks for joining us this hour, on the station and at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Love Writer's Voice? Please rate us on your podcast app. It really helps to get the word out about the show. Our show notes are at writersvoice.net, and you can read interview transcripts at the Writer's Voice substack. Don't forget to subscribe. It's free. Not long before the COVID-19 epidemic locked our nation down, ecologist and author Carl Safina and his wife Patricia were handed a tiny, raggedy ball of fluff by a wildlife rescuer. It turned out to be a baby owl on the brink of death the rescuer had found lying on the ground. Safina and Patricia raised the chick they named Alfie. Through the process, Safina learned more than he ever imagined, not only about Alfie the owl, but also about how the world actually works and how people have become so blind to that. We've talked with Safina about his recent books, Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel, and Becoming Wild, which is about animal cultures. They show the intelligence and conscious agency that are everywhere in the animal kingdom. His new book, Alfie and Me, goes further by exploring, on the one hand, his unfolding relationship with one particular owl, and on the other, how we humans adopted the truly bizarre belief 
that we're unconnected to the rest of life on the planet. From its origins in Plato's philosophy to the French Enlightenment to modern science, it's a belief that will doom us, sooner or later, to extinction. Carl Safina, welcome back to Writer's Voice. Thank you. It's really nice to be with you again. You know, I love all your books, but I actually love this one the best. I think it's a real development, I think, a trajectory that I've noticed in you over time, especially the last several books where you have kept on kind of approaching and talking about that space, about animals being other beings like humans, you know, humans and the other animals instead of humans and animals. But this goes furthest of all to really talk about our place in the world and the place of animals in our world. Um, it's very much about a personal relationship that you had with an owl, and it's about how humans relate or don't relate with the other sentient animals with whom we share our world. The title and the subtitle say it all, Alfie and Me. Tell us about that subtitle, What Owls Know, What Humans Believe. Yeah, well, the subtitle alludes to the idea that Alfie and really all the other animals, they're pragmatists and empiricists. They they know things. People have often said humans are the only logical animals, but I think that's almost completely backward. We're really the only illogical animals. We're the only ones who carry on through the world based on our beliefs rather than on evidence about how the world is and what the world around us is. We we believe things that people tell us and teach us. We believe things that have been handed down for centuries. And we fight sometimes ideologically and sometimes physically and very violently over things that we simply believe that people have told us that have come down for centuries, rather than looking at the world around us and believing the things that we know to be true. In a moment, we're going to talk about some of how those beliefs got created. But first, I want to introduce our listeners to Alfie. How did you meet Alfie? Alfie was a little nestling screech owl that was somehow dropped on somebody's lawn. Uh, my best guess is maybe a crow was raiding a screech owl nest and this little nestling. I mean, she was very, very small. She was only about a week or 10 days old, I, I'm estimating, and weeks away from being old enough to leave the nest on her own. Uh, so she was found by somebody, some homeowner, who called a wildlife rehabber. The rehabber didn't even know what kind of bird this was because it was so far gone. I mean, she looked like she was just some, she looked like a dead rag in the photo that I first saw of her. And uh, when I realized that I was looking, actually looking at a bird in the text photo from the rehabber that said, do you know what kind of bird this is? I thought, 
well, that looks like a dead owl chick, but the bird was not dead, very near death, but the rehabber did a really superb job of cleaning her up and stabilizing her and getting her on the road toward thriving. And uh, we decided mutually. So the rehabber contacted me because I've had a lot of experience with owls and hawks and keeping and raising and training other birds. And I started a wildlife rehabilitation organization, or I, I co-founded a wildlife rehabilitation organization a long time ago that is still going strong. So the rehabber was working a little bit with me on the owl, and we decided that a good place to release this owl would be in my backyard because we are up against about 30 acres of woodland. So um, the owl started to thrive, and that was the idea. There would be a soft release. The owl would not be caged. And like in nature, as soon as she was ready to, she'd leave and fly around a bit, learning how to how to fly, how to maneuver, starting to learn how to hunt, while we would continue to put food out for her. This is very close to a natural way that that would work. In, in the wild, the adults would, in fact, care for their young ones for about three weeks after they're out of the nest and flying around until the young ones just wander off on their own. And that's very similar to a particular technique in falconry and a technique that we used when I worked for the Peregrine Fund all the way back in college when they were reintroducing Peregrine Falcons bred in captivity. We did that reintroduction in a very similar kind of way. So I knew how to do that. And it was decided that we would do that from our backyard here. But there was a flight delay. The owl's long wing feathers that provide flying power and lift mostly did not come out. So she could only flop around when her brain was telling her it's time to fly. And that really meant that she would just probably get killed in the first night flopping around the backyard at that rate by a cat or a raccoon or a hawk or a great horned owl or something along those lines. There's plenty of things that would like to make a snack of any young bird. So we held her in protective custody through a molt. And when we realized that, yes, indeed, her her feathers are, are going to come in, they came in and she could suddenly fly. But by that time, it was getting to be toward winter and the food was going to be at its yearly low out there. Uh, she did not have any hunting experience. And I decided that uh, rather than face almost certain starvation, we'd keep her through the winter and then the following spring and summer, I would get her in condition for, you know, I, I'll, I'll say release, but basically just leaving the door open and letting her decide what to do. Right. And why did you not want to keep her captive? Because that is not life. It's pure safety but there's no shot at being part of the world or part of the future. It wouldn't be the life she was born to live or the uh, 
opportunity to use all the capacities that she had. You know, all of us face the possibility of being totally safe all the time. We could just stay in bed. But um, we all choose the the risks and the rewards of freedom. Most of us um, want to uh, want to fulfill the whole cycle of living. And that includes really, you know, all of the other creatures. That's their preference. If you leave the door open, they will leave, even though when she was in that coop, it was uh, the outdoor part of our chicken coop, which I um, I modified into uh, a nice, comfortable space for her. She never, she never tried to get out. She never acted confined. She was always very comfortable in there. But when the door was open, eventually, and it, it wasn't the first night, but um, eventually she started to come and go a little bit, and then she left. She left for what I thought might be, you know, permanently. We we left food around. It was not getting eaten. She was not around. But then she suddenly returned. And actually, she's always been around since then. It's now years later. But as far as the book is concerned, that first free-flying year coincided with all of the COVID shutdowns of 2020. And my calendar got completely erased and I had nowhere I needed to go and I had nothing better to do than to watch Alfie this little owl in her new free-flying life in our backyard she very soon attracted a suitor and I watched with amazement the development of of the bond between them which started out with her being hesitant not trusting then a little more comfortable then he started bringing her gifts of food which at first she didn't take or or sometimes would take and then she got more and more comfortable the bond you know became more and more solidified and she'd come out of the place she was roosting in the day she'd call for him we called him plus one she'd call for him he would appear they would they would go together near a nest box that I put up. I saw her prospecting around in some tree holes, and I put a nest box up uh, right outside my writing studio. They they liked the nest box, so they they would start to meet right outside there. He would go get her a gift of some kind of food, usually a moth, and they began to act like a, a mated, bonded couple. And then it came time for actual physical mating. She was very awkward at that at first. She didn't really know how to um, how to adopt the proper posture for fertilization. But then one night I saw her, I saw her kind of realize suddenly how to do it right. And then I noticed that she was not coming out, that the schedule and the routine had changed. She was in the box a lot. I thought she must be incubating eggs. And in fact, she had laid three eggs. 
I didn't know at that point whether they were fertile or or any of them were not fertile. But uh, much to my absolute delight, all three of them hatched. All three of them fledged. All three of them survived and eventually dispersed. So I was watching all of this for about five hours a day, taking lots and lots of notes. In the 1980s, I studied seabirds for a living and I spent, you know, hundreds of hours observing their behavior and writing science papers and things like that. But I was looking for generalizations and, you know, studying things like what, what was the average number of chicks per nest that they fledged, average clutch size that they laid, things like that. What I had never done was to get to know so intimately a bird who knew me very intimately was completely tame and trusting of me and yet totally acted normal like a normal owl with regard to her mate and her new brood she was a really competent mother i would watch her you know i'd go and find the young ones after they fledged they they tended to roost in one particular area, uh, right at the edge of my backyard in some young maples. And I, I'd go and find them there and I'd, I'd watch the the male come with food. I'd watch Alfie feed the young chicks. She was very doting. She, she would go to each one, make sure that they got enough. Often those chicks were so well-fed, they would actually move away from her when she had food. And it was kind of like, I don't wanna eat my peas, mom. And she would be saying, eat your peas, they're good for you. But she she would follow these young ones around, making sure that they all were fed. And it was just a fantastic story full of, full of nuance and subtlety and capacity that I did not suspect owls harbored. You know, I, I got to know something about these birds. And then I started to ask myself, well, why are we so blind to all of this? These lives happen all around us all the time. I actually studied birds for a living for a long while. Why was all of this a surprise to me? What's wrong with with us that we are so unacquainted with the world around us? Is this a natural thing about the human mind that we're not interested or we're, or we're so limited? in our ability to pay attention and understand, or, or is it a cultural thing that we're simply taught that the rest of the living world is of no real interest and no real value to us? So I went on a bit of a journey myself, you know, trying to answer that question. Exactly. And that journey is what makes this book so special. This is Writer's Voice, and I'm Francesca Rhiannon. I'm talking with ecologist Carl Safina about his new book, Alfie and Me, What Owls Know, What Humans Believe. You've touched on a lot of things here. Um, You called her tame, and I really wanted to think about what that meant. You know, it reminds me of what the fox tells the little prince in the story of the little prince. The little prince asks, what is the meaning of tamed? And the fox says that to tame is to establish ties, meaning that if they're tamed, then the fox and the boy will need each other 
and become unique in each other's eyes. And you say, what is possible when we soften our sense of contrast at the species boundary? I have a sense of what became possible for you. What became possible for Alfie? Uh, for one thing, she was able to stay alive. I mean, that that was something. And then, you know, what does it mean to be tame? I Trust is what it means. She she trusted us entirely, and the trust was well-earned and well-deserved because we were really interested in in her life and in in keeping her alive. And we we helped that happen. I mean, when she was very little, we made sure that happened. And then after she was free, we helped that happen. But what became possible for me was I just, I began to see much more deeply into the capacities I had not suspected and into all these other lives and all the dynamics around us in the backyard. I, like I said, I was often out there for about five hours a day, two or three hours in the in the morning around dawn, two or three hours in the evening around sunset. I saw various other birds doing things. I saw interactions between the other birds and the owls. I I saw all these behaviors between the owls themselves that surprised me. And I saw all these similarities, you know, like when when watching the bond develop between them. I, I used to just think, you know, a male and a female find each other on a suitable territory and they perform courtship in a sort of a stereotyped way. And then they just go through the normal phases of things. But their relationship developed in a very, very recognizable way. You know, we often, we meet people, we're not quite sure about them. Uh, this is what dating is all about, right? And, you know, and dating usually involves food. And in many cultures, including our own, supposedly, you know, it's just it's just known and assumed that the, the man is sort of in charge of this, right? If the woman wants to make sure that the man knows that this is a date, she lets him pay for dinner, right? And the man wants to do this to show. So, I mean, it's it can be silly and we can smile about it, but the overlap between that and what the owls was doing was very recognizable. We're not that different is what the main thing is. We're all part of a family of life that is organically related. This is this is a fact. And if you open your eyes or you have the opportunity to open your eyes like like I did because we had a tame owl in our backyard during a year when I couldn't do anything else because of a bizarre pandemic, well, then I started to see things that I would have said before that, you know, I believe these things to be true. I know that we are all one biological family, but I really, you know, it really became much more vivid and much more resonant and affirmed by watching what I was watching. And so how did, Carl Safina, how did we fall so far from the Garden of Eden where we made a differentiation between us and the rest of the animals? Because for most of human history, we were well aware of our connection, and certainly for most of prehistory. So you start with the oldest and most enduring human take on the other animals, the indigenous view. Tell us a little bit about that, and then 
How did we begin to fall away and why? Yeah, even though indigenous people around the world have very, very different cultures, and by indigenous, you know, I mean really traditional people tied to a landscape that they've been tied to for many generations. Despite all the cultural differences, there are great similarities in how they see the relationship with other living things. They see all other living things as relatives. They assume agency on the part of other animals. They are very respectful in how they use living things. People have ceremonies before they'll go out and cut a tree. They'll ask permission from the forest before they harvest medicinal plant or gather medicinal plants. They will have rituals that go along with hunting weapons and asking the hunted for, you know, basically for the favor of making themselves vulnerable to provide for the people. And then they'll have other rituals for how to how to dispose of the bones and things like that. This respect and acknowledgement of agency is very, very common and was very common for tens of thousands of years among human beings worldwide. And then I looked at other cultures, in addition to the indigenous cultures, cultures in South Asia, the Dharmic religions that believe that the soul travels equally through many different kinds of living things, that we're not the only ones with a an eternal soul, that our soul makes these visits in different forms of life, experiences these things equivalently, that the huge emphasis there is that everything is in relation to everything else, that there's a network of relationality in in all of life and in fact the entire universe everything is tied and bound in relation in east asia the the philosophies there talk about how the diversity of the world creates the unity of the world you can't have up without down you can't have backward unless you have forward you can't have life without death and the role of people in these balances is to live in the world without upsetting the balances. This is sort of the yin and yang kind of idea, right? So all of these have in common that all of the holy and sacred things are of this world, that matter and spirit are not separate things, that they, they are both complementary things of this world, and then you get to the West, our culture, which says something totally different, which is that the world is not a nice place, that it is full of decay and imperfection and suffering, and that Plato said that there must be a perfect place somewhere else, that everything in the world, in the physical world, is... Um, is a faulty manifestation of a perfection that exists somewhere outside of space and time, and that we we can imagine perfection. For instance, we can imagine a perfect circle. We can imagine perfect love. We can imagine a perfectly 
blue sky, all, all the perfection we can imagine, we can only imagine, said Plato, because we must have had some experience with a perfect place. And that perfect place cannot be this world, which is so imperfect. It must be that an eternal soul that exists only in humans has experienced perfection and our soul yearns to return there and can only return there when our decaying sickly body releases it by dying. And why do you think such a bizarre notion not only was created, but really took hold and still uh, sways in many ways as led to other things. I mean, I was trying to puzzle this out because Plato, you know, there were the Epicureans who, who opposed that idea. Um, it is so counter to the experience of humans to life. What kind of society does this? Plato had a lot of critics. You know, to Plato... A brown dog was an example of perfect brown and perfect dogness. But his star student Aristotle said, you know, that's silly. A brown dog is a dog that's brown. He, he had plenty of critics because his views were, in fact, quite bizarre. But there were Platonist Jewish philosophers who brought these ideas into Judaism as it was developing. And then the Christian theologians were literally quoting Plato. And some of Plato's writings were found along with the writings of some of the early Christian theologians. So Plato's idea of perfection and a soul that wants to get out of this world became the idea of heaven and, and our soul that should be concerned only with the afterlife and it, it just resonated so well with these ideas that were developing in these religions, especially Christianity. And Christianity, you know, and the Abrahamic, the three Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, they became extremely popular. And Christianity became very popular um, often by force, because for about 800 years, anybody who believed anything different throughout Europe and the and the Western world uh, was in for a tremendous amount of trouble, in, including you know many many executions and persecutions and things like that. So these ideas, you know, they were not the best ideas, but they were in many ways brutally reinforced. And uh, the people who developed science and the beginnings of modern technology, they grew up in this tradition, which said only humans have souls. Other creatures have no value. The physical world doesn't matter. So all of our modern practices inhaled those values. Uh, you can see it very easily in the simple fact that industries and companies that pollute can keep their profits and don't pay for pollution. That, you know, last summer we couldn't see the sun because of all the smoke, because Canada was on fire, because it's warming up and drying out. But Shell and Exxon announced gigantic new investments in more and more gas and oil. That's fine. That's totally legal. They can keep all the profits. They don't have to pay anything for the consequences. And they don't really care about the consequences. Clearly, manifestly, they don't. 
what when we talk about rights, we have bills of rights, we have the UN Declaration of Rights, we have the rights of businesses. These are all claims to what what we want to have and get with no declarations of responsibilities. There's no bill of responsibilities or UN declaration of responsibilities. Nobody says we have to consider the children and the next generations or much less all of the other things that live or the physical processes that make life possible that we are unraveling and destabilizing now. The valuation that says that those things matter not at all, that their financial price is zero, is a totally made up thing. But we make it up because for 2000 years, or all the way back to Plato for 5000 years or so, our idea in our culture is that the physical world doesn't have any value. And our economic system that is based on that idea has globalized to the global economic system. Yes, and we are on the brink in many ways, uh, which is one of the reasons this book, Alfie and Me, I think is so vitally important, Carl Safina. Um, you talk about the pointlessness of the universe. I, I found this a very interesting concept because, you know, people say, oh, the universe is pointless, so we have to create a god. You're saying... It's a good thing. And it's not quite totally pointless, as you point out. Talk about why this is such an important concept, the idea that what life is, what you call ali emergent aliveness. Oh, well, that's about four different things. So I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can wrap that in one answer exactly. But let's talk about the pointlessness of the universe first. If the universe had a point, then everything about the universe would be going in that direction. And we wouldn't have any opportunity to run uphill or be creative or decide. We'd have no free will. We would have no latitude. There'd be nothing that we could really do because it would all be dictated by whatever point the universe was running toward. But the universe is absolutely filled with randomness. And that provides us with the opportunity to decide what kind of world and what kind of life we would like to have, that we can create this warm little place filled with love and art and music and science for ourselves. And that is the meaning we can create for the universe and for our planet and for our lives. You say, in fact, will we simply decide that the continued survival of living beings is a good thing? Will we understand that we're made for the world that made us and that we must love the world that loves us? And I was really struck by something you say. We, we keep on saying we want to get back to the garden going out here, tell us what that garden is and our place in it. Well, that's a great story by itself, you know, that humans came into a beautiful world filled with living things. We wanted to know about it. And in this terrible story, our God kicks us out for wanting to be better acquainted with the garden of life. I mean, this is a horrible, horrible story, uh, full, full of, of self-hatred, 
disconnection from the living world and misogyny all wrapped up in one terrible creation story the, the you know we don't need to get back to the garden we're we're in the garden we just need to open our eyes and and love this miracle of a world that is just mind-bogglingly complex and beautiful absolutely well, it's such a beautiful, and by the way, just a beautifully written book. This is some of the most stunning writing. I mean, you're a wonderful writer, but I, I think you outdid yourself here. It's a wonderful book. Alfie and Me, What Owls Know, What Humans Believe. Thank you so much for talking with us, and thank you for writing this book. Well, Francesca, thank you for having me, and this was a, a delightful discussion, as have been all the discussions I've ever had with you. Carl Safina is the founding president of the Safina Center and is inaugural holder of the Carl Safina Endowed Chair for Nature and Humanity at Stony Brook University. We have links to photos of Alfie and an excerpt from Alfie and Me at writersvoice.net. Next up, what's the connection between the current Israel-Palestinian conflict and oil? Find out after the break. <laughs> This is Not a War by Andrew Jackson, Jihad. Welcome back to Writer's Voice. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Ever since the horrific October 7th attacks by Hamas on Israeli residents, most of Western media has focused on defending the Israelis and downplaying the historical context within which those attacks took place. The 75-year-long dispossession of the Palestinians the predations of Israeli settlements into Palestinian territory, and the sealing off of Gaza as the world's largest open-air prison. Of course, nothing excuses killing civilians, whether they be Israeli or Palestinian. It does seem like the tide may be turning as Israel's savage siege and bombardment of Gaza and the resulting deaths of many thousands, including thousands of children, wake up even the corporate media to the larger issues surrounding the war. But one big factor in the conflict has remained largely hidden. The role oil, and specifically oil off the Gaza coast, plays. Charlotte Dennett's 2022 book, Follow the Pipelines is about how the great power's game over oil underlies so much of the conflict in the Middle East. It looks beyond ethnic hatreds and divisions, most notably Arabs and Jews, to those who have set peoples against each other in their divide and rule quest to control and profit from the oil that lies under the sand and waters of that region. We called Dennett up on short notice to ask her about the role that oil is playing in the Israel-Palestinian war. And just a note, Dennett refers to previous Israeli support of Hamas. This is something that has been openly stated by none other than folks like Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Charlotte Dennett, welcome to Writer's Voice. Oh, it's a pleasure. So this book, Follow the Pipelines, Uncovering the Mystery of, the, of a Lost Spy and the Deadly Politics of the Great Game for Oil, it published in uh, 2020 and then again was, uh, it came out in paperback in 2022. Very relevant today, however, given what's going on in the Middle East right now. Maybe just briefly tell us 
why did you write this book? You know, tell us just a little bit about your dad to get us into the story. Well, I wrote the book because I felt a pressing need to fill in a lot of the blanks in coverage by the media of all these endless wars in the Middle East. Namely, they weren't covering the oil angle. And I have a very personal investment in learning about the oil angle. So briefly, my father was America's first master spy in the Middle East. He was sent over to Lebanon where he would be based. First, he was with the OSS, Office of Strategic Services, and by 1947, he was with the Central Intelligence Group, the the immediate precursor to the CIA. And he was sent out there in 1944. He wrote a memo, which I was able to get by suing the CIA under FOIA, that stated that his, his goal was, quote, to protect oil at all costs. And uh, when I saw that, it, it was an aha moment because I, I was thinking that in spending decades investigating his case. I knew his last mission was to Saudi Arabia, and it was to determine the route of the Trans-Arabian pipeline that was going to take incredibly important Saudi oil over the Saudi peninsula, and it was going to land in a terminal point in the Eastern Mediterranean. And the two areas they were considering were Lebanon and Palestine. So I thought, whoa, this is big. Then I saw his uh, last report before he died in a mysterious plane crash. And it was all about the troubles that the U.S. was having with Syria in having the pipeline pass through the Golan Heights to its final destination. The Syrians didn't want it. They were very nationalist at that moment. They were very opposed to the uh, creation of the state of Israel at the time. And so uh, they were objecting. And this got the uh, Central Intelligence Group, uh, you know, very concerned. And eventually, after my father's death in 1949, the CIA staged its first coup. Most people don't know that. They think it was the coup in Iran. No, 1949 to overthrow the you know duly elected president of, of Syria and to replace him with a, a police chief who was favorable to Israel and who allowed the pipeline to go through. So that was my first inkling. So I pursued it. Now, my father's, he died in a plane crash after this mission to Saudi Arabia. He was on the way to Ethiopia. There were actually six people on the plane And they were all very high level, either intelligence, well, mostly with high level clearance. So they were headed to uh, Ethiopia and the Ethiopian government under Haile Selassie was very interested in having the Americans do a survey of Ethiopian oil. And then I learned that the British were very much opposed to this because they had a stranglehold colonial type over Ethiopia. They controlled the air, the uh, railroad and all routes out of Ethiopia was under British control, which had Halle Selassie uh, chafing. So he was cutting deals with the Americans. The British were very upset. And I learned that the Russians were very interested also in Ethiopia. And if you look on a map, uh, you can see its location. It's, it's opposite Saudi Arabia. I mean, actually, it did not have territory right on the coast, and it was trying to get that on the, on the Red Sea. If you look at the location, it's part of a whole area that was surveyed in the 1930s by the Italians. And they they realized there was this whole 
field of oil across the Red Sea, across from Saudi Arabia, and everyone was trying to get in on it. And one of my father's reports in 1947 had been stating there's going to be a real free-for-all, quote-unquote, after the conclusion of the peace talks post-World War II. So the, I, I learned the free-for-all meant that even our erstwhile allies, and that means the British and the, and the French and the Russians, they were all after each other. They were spying on each other. They were hurting each other. It was just this incredible greed for oil. So then my investigation went all the way up to the endless wars, and I found oil and pipeline connections to all of them. And it continues today. You know, Ukraine, heard of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline? I can talk about that. Gaza, I wrote about that in the book. It's a, an oil and gas field off the coast of Gaza that the Palestinians are laying claim to, and Netanyahu was determined not to allow them to get it. This is Writer's Voice, and I'm talking with Charlotte Dennett about the role the greed for oil is playing in the current Israel-Palestine conflict. Well, let's get into that story. Um, first of all, I, I want to ask you, this book, Follow the Pipelines, talks about a divide and rule strategy. What do you mean by that? Divide and rule, I mean, obviously, that's the way capitalist uh capitalism works all the time you know divide and rule is the way they stay in power but specifically what did that mean here well i was referring directly to the whole case of gaza and how it came to be that netanyahu did not want the palestinian authority to have any control over the Gazan oil fields, oil and gas fields that were off the coast of Gaza. They had been discovered in 2000. So what he did is he, he uh, decided that he would have Hamas control Gaza. And what that would do is there was divide and rule right there. You know, there had been this unified Palestinian authority and suddenly he divided it and put a more uh, radical group to control Gaza. And he even cut a deal with the United Arab Emirates that it would supply some funds to the, the Gazans and to Hamas, just as long as these two entities were divided. And so by having Gaza there, the claim was, well, they can't, they can't have access to, to this oil and gas. And one of the things that happened after that is that by 2007, an Israeli defense person, he, he was involved with the army, was saying that if they get a hold of that oil and gas, all the money, which was estimated to be a, a billion dollars, would not go towards economic development to the impoverished Palestinians. It would go to funding terrorism. And that argument's been used repeatedly, even up to now when the, they're saying that uh, we can't give fuel in Gaza because it would be used by the terrorists, you know? So anyway, that was the argument. And in 2000, late 2008, 2009, the first invasion of Gaza occurred. And I have quotes. They're saying, you know, we can't commence drilling in that area until we clear the place of, of Hamas. 
and then there was another invasion in 2014, the same thing. Now, this is not getting covered. It drives me crazy. So let me uh, see if I have this clear. You're saying that Israel actually was behind putting Hamas into power, although Hamas did win an election, was behind putting Hamas in power so that they could kind of set up a straw man as an excuse for not developing the oil fields? I think that's true, yes. I mean, Hamas had had uh, been elected by the people of Gaza overwhelmingly in an election. That was in 2006. And the reason they, they wanted Hamas and not the Palestinian authorities because they thought, saw the Palestinian authority as weak and corrupt, which it was. And God knows what Arafat's fortune ended up being. I hear it was very high. But all this money pouring in, and it wasn't going really to help the people the way he wanted. And they felt it was sort of like a vassal of Israel, you know, and they didn't trust it. So they went with Hamas. And so even now, not all of them are for it, but people need to understand it's not just a militant group. There, there is the army wing of it, but they also provide social services. They provide health care, etc. So it's even being mischaracterized also in the press, you know, just branded as, as a terrible terrorist organization. And that's not the full picture. What about the potential for a wider conflict? This is something that people are very concerned about. And just lay it out for us, you're saying there are oil fields off off the coast of Gaza. What is the pipeline issue here? The pipeline issue? Well, going back to the war in Iraq, one of the big uh, cheerleaders for Bush going into Iraq was Netanyahu. He was finance minister at the time. And what he wanted to do was revive the Iraq Petroleum Company pipeline that had been built in the 30s and that had terminated the branch of it, which was a British control, was terminated in Haifa. It was closed during the uh, 1948 Israeli War for Independence. The Iraqis didn't want to support this new state of Israel, so it was closed. Netanyahu wanted it reopened, and he even came out after the invasion saying the oil will soon be flowing to Haifa, and it's not a pipe dream. Actually, it was a pipe dream because there's still a lot of conflict there. And one thing I learned is no financial institution is going to fund a pipeline project if there's unrest in the area. So anyway, that was one aspect. And then most recently, under the so-called Abraham Accords, one of the uh, plans by Kushner and company is to reopen the Trans-Arabian pipeline that my father had first worked on you know, back in 1947. Only its terminal point would not be in Lebanon this time. It would be in Haifa. And so that is another aspect of this whole crisis that seldom gets discussed. So did Hamas time its uh, attack on October 7th on Israel to sabotage? Uh, you know, there was a, a peace deal that was about to happen with Saudi Arabia did Hamas time its attack to sabotage that peace deal? Well, there's a lot of speculation about that. And I think it hasn't been firmly confirmed. I haven't been able to do it. So one can only speculate. And what I'm speculating is I think it's highly possible 
that that was the last straw for Hamas. They, they had tried to be involved in peace discussions and Israel would not allow it, would not put Hamas in any of them. And so they, they were already feeling excluded. And when this deal came through, I think they saw the writing on the wall that with all this momentum in creating new peace initiatives with Arab countries and then Saudi Arabia, I mean, that's huge, okay? And very little mention of their needs for, for a state. I mean, Saudi Arabia has, I suppose, given lip service that there has to be a separate state for the Palestinians. But the way that Hamas looked at it is they're not going to do it. They want us to disappear. And so I think it's entirely plausible. Whether Russia was behind it, too, one should always consider that. Because as you see, a great game for oil, there's always proxy wars going on. So you have to look, did Russia encourage this? We don't know yet. It's possible. You're saying did Russia encourage Hamas to attack Israel? I don't know yet. I'm just saying it's plausible. It's plausible the Iranians encouraged it, although the Iranians are saying they didn't for obvious reason, because then the whole thing escalates. And it's already escalating. The news this morning as we speak is that the uh, U.S. has been bombing certain targets in Syria to protect American troops there. And now people are asking, what are American troops doing in Syria? This is another aspect that's not well covered. And what I know for sure, what I wrote in my book, is that they stationed themselves in eastern Syria, right near Syria's major oil reserves. And you will remember that President Trump made this blooper when he as president said he was withdrawing American troops from Syria. And then there was this flurry of excitement and concern. Next thing you know, you say, oh, no, I've changed my mind. They've got to go back so we can protect the oil. And he even said the oil is ours, which is not true. But that is the real reason that American troops are there. The official reason is to go after ISIS. Okay, because ISIS is in the region. Why would the U.S. and Russians tolerate American troops there? The Syrians don't like ISIS either. I mean, it's an extreme fundamentalist group that causes a lot of uh, unrest. So there may have been some kind of an understanding, but now it's getting very heavy. And the U.S. was responding to Iranian, apparently, activities, missiles fired at the American troops. So the U.S. is trying to keep it confined to just, you know, it's just tit for tat. The Iranian groups had targeted American installations in, in Syria, and, you know, the U.S. feels it has to respond. But they're trying to keep that separate in part from what's going on in Gaza. But before long, there's just a huge potential for escalation. Everybody's saying it. I mean, you know, the timing of all of this. How can you say it's not related? And, of course, the U.S. is very concerned about Iran through Hezbollah in Lebanon. That's the other area they're very concerned about. And Hezbollah is a very sophisticated armed group that's been fighting the Israelis. And now now we're seeing problems there too. And then all the warships coming in. I mean, where is this headed? Exactly. I mean, we're talking about nuclear armed states here. Um, yeah. But the connection to oil, are you saying that you know, all those peace talks and the two-state solution that has been continuously undermined has been undermined because of this uh, great game over oil? 
yes, that that is what I'm saying. Certainly, that it's been undermined by the Israelis. They've said outright they do not want the Palestinians to have access to that oil and natural gas, period. And so what they're doing now is, I think Netanyahu hoped to, you know, completely wipe out Hamas and try to get someone else in there. And they're just not going to allow it. That's the way I see it. Even though, you know, when, when the oil was first discovered, Arafat was saying, this is such a blessing. We can finally have our state. What he meant was, you know, a state that was truly independent from Israel and could develop on its own. And these oil and gas revenues would help it. And so Israel did not want that to happen. And that is the, that's the underlying motive, in my opinion. Uh, then you've got a right-wing government that doesn't care particularly about what happens to the Gazans. And I think the Biden administration is under huge international pressure now because what is going on is the definition of genocide, definition. I am just appalled by some of the statements that President Biden has said supporting Israel in this mission. You, you can't look at those pictures of the mass destruction and the how many deaths are there now? 4,000? Oh, no, uh, it's 7,000, I believe. Oh, oh now up to 7,000. And I mean, the definition of genocide is the destruction of a people. And not only are they bombing them, but they're preventing them from having food and electricity and fuel. So we're watching a genocidal campaign on television. I would say it's one of the first times, and it's hugely tragic. I was at a demonstration yesterday for um, Jewish Voice for Peace here in Burlington, Vermont, and one guy carried a sign that said Jews against genocide. Absolutely. This is horrible and tragic. Well, it's been great to talk with you, Charlotte Dennett. We called you up on extremely short notice. Your book is Follow the Pipelines, Uncovering the Mystery of a Lost Spy and the Deadly Politics of the Great Game for Oil. Thanks again. I really appreciate you talking with us here. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed it. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Love Writer's Voice? Please rate us on your podcast app. It really helps to get the word out about the show. Our show notes are at writersvoice.net, and you can read interview transcripts at the Writer's Voice substack. Don't forget to subscribe. It's free. It's free.